are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Like many things, there's something bittersweet about coming to the end of something. This afternoon, we've come to the end of the book of James. Praise God, right? Praise the Lord. James, it's, the book of James is practical, it's heavy, it's pointed, it's sometimes painfully revealing, but it's a great letter to us all. And we've been on the series since June, which seems pretty short considering we've been in uh, Luke for two years. So that's not too bad. And I think it was a half year well spent, wouldn't you agree? Now, this afternoon we've come to the end, even though the truths of uh, what we've learned continue to apply to us every single day. And I want to go straight into our first point. Our first point is that the truth must be lived out. Now, go ahead and tell your neighbor that. Truth must be, must be lived out. Have any of you guys ever played Pictionary? We're going to play right now. Are you ready? You have your pens, you have your notes, you have your bulletin, you can write in that. Now, all you have to do is this. I'm going to tell a word, and then you go ahead and describe, or I, I should say draw a picture of that word, what, the first thing that comes to mind. You can't use numbers. You can't use letters. You can't use things that sound like it or anything like that. But you can try to do it and then guess. Do your best here. Here's the word. Truth. I'll give you 10 seconds. Go ahead. Draw it. Three, two, one. Great. Time's up. What did you guys draw? Some of you guys maybe drew, I don't know, what? Maybe a light bulb over someone's head. It's, it's a thought, an idea, reason. Maybe for those of you self-professed theologians, you drew the Ten Commandments with Moses, or you drew the Bible or something like that. The point is this. It's not easy depicting truth because it all depends on how you define it, right? It all depends on how you define it, and that's my point. Because what you draw tells me and tells us what you believe about truth and how you conceive of truth. But it's interesting how the Bible describes it. According to verse 19, truth is a road that we are to walk on. It's a road. It's a way or it's a path that's to be followed. It is a life that is to be lived. Do you see it in verse 19? Truth is a path from which someone might wander off from. Truth is a road to which someone might need to return back to, okay? Truth, according to this verse, isn't just some idea, some idea you think about or some idea that you study. It's almost real, it's tangible, it's physical, it's a lifestyle. And so this verse describes not just what it is, but the way that we are to travel. So not surprisingly, we know from John chapter 14, verse 6, that Jesus calls himself the truth as well as the way. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Truth has to be lived, not just understood, not just believed. Say to one another, let's believe and live out the truth. Yet sadly in our time, 
We've created the separation between true words and true practice. We create the separation between believing or belief and lifestyle. So there's a lot of people in the world who, who believe a lot of different things, but what they believe don't necessarily have anything to do with what they do. And if we're to be honest, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have fit into that category one time or another. This isn't new news for us, I don't think, but nevertheless, God's condemnation of it isn't new either. He doesn't like this inconsistency. He doesn't like us professing to believe this truth and accepting this truth while denying it through our actions. And he condemns it. In fact, in 1 John 1.5, it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. That's why Jesus also says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He says, why do you say Lord, Lord, as in professing to believe what I am, who I am, that this is the truth? Why do you keep professing the truth, but you're not following the truth? What is James telling us here as he concludes this letter? He knows he's given us a whole lot of information. In fact, six months of information, right? A lot of different challenging thoughts, a lot of wonderful and inspirational truths and encouragement. But he's telling us that none of that really matters if it's not lived out. None of it really matters if it's not lived out. So God is calling us to do something right now. He's calling us to repent. He's calling us to turn around, to stop with our hypocrisy. Whatever is that's in your life that's preventing you from getting closer to God, he says, stop that. Repent of it. And you know that whatever it is that's acting as a buffer, an obstacle between you and your fellowship with God, God says, repent of it right now. If you believe that Jesus will set you free, how many of you guys believe that? He will set you free. Just as he promises in John chapter 8, verse 32, then you must trust that you have to repent and that the Lord will set you free through his forgiveness, through his grace, through his mercy. We need to quit playing these word games with God saying, yes, I believe, I believe, I believe. And we need to start living out and practicing this truth. Amen? The reason why we can't simply sit back and say, well, I'm saved. I got my ticket of salvation. I believe in Jesus Christ. I am qualified by him. I'm laying down. I'm riding on the coattail of Christ's credentials. The reason why we can't do that, and it's not a good idea to do that, is because of something called Judgment Day. No, it's not the Terminator. It's biblical. It's the day that human history ends and when the eternal state begins for us. Because while we may be clothed in righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith and not by our works, the Bible consistently and constantly tells all believers that we'll also have to give an account. Not just unbelievers, but believers themselves, us, will have to give an account to God. But what, what will we say? What will God say? What, what account are we talking about? It's not an account of what we profess to believe. He's not going to give you a, theolo he's not going to give you a, th a theological test or examination saying, parse this in Greek, or give me the exegesis of this passage, or what do you truly understand about the Trinity or about the doctrine of whatever. No, he's not going to say anything like that. He's not going to ask you what you believe. He already knows that you already believe what you believe. That's why you're standing in front of him. He's going to ask you, what did you do with your faith? What did you do with what you believe? Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, 
The purpose of that event is to exhaustively evaluate our lives. That's the point. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says. That this is where God rewards us. And we know that we don't stand condemned before him because Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the purpose here is to examine a Christian's total life. When you sit, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's when God says, let me check out your life now. Now I want to I reveal, I want to play back to you what's going on here. And there will be recompense and reward for all our deeds, whether good or bad. So here's the thing. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. Start praising him at that time. It's a great thing. It's a time where you should be, feel encouraged because that's where God will reward us. However, however, your life here and now, our present lives and what we do, when we do it, how we do it, what we do, it will affect what happens at the judgment seat. And let me explain. We know what sin does, doesn't, don't we? We know what sin does to our life right now. We know what indifference does. We know what apathy does. It robs our desire to serve God. This will affect how we live in glorifying God, meaning the more into sin you are, the less into God you'll be. All right, that's obvious. We know that. It robs your joy. It takes away your desire to be with him. Secondly, sin and indifference or apathy, it makes us lose the power of God within us. The more you give control to sin in your life, to Satan, the less that the Holy Spirit has a grip on you. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. But not only that, what else does sin do? Sin Sin and apathy, it causes us to pass up opportunities to serve God and others. I mean, how many times have we done that? So while those who profess in Christ are saved, and they're not condemned, and they are being rewarded at that judgment seat of Christ, there's this one key verse that's really interesting that we need to look into. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, it tells us something else. Despite the fact that you're saved and that you're not condemned and that you're being rewarded, and there you are standing graciously at the mercy throne of, God, of, of Jesus Christ, that verse says this, that if we live as Christians unfaithfully, if we live as Christians untruthfully, If we as Christians live in any way that is not consistent in abiding in the word of God, we are not walking with the Lord, we are not obeying his commands, that day when we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ and we see Jesus in all his glory and we witness the majesty and the brilliance of our Lord and Savior, the one who died for us, the one who gave up everything for us, at that moment, Despite the fact that you are a Christian, you are saved, you are cloaked in righteousness, you are not condemned, you are being rewarded, at that moment, you will stand there ashamed. Ashamed. Ashamed of our self-centered living. Ashamed of the fact that we have been so unfaithful in our stewardship of the resources and the talents and the finances and the time and the opportunities that were given to us by God. We will be ashamed of all the times that we have neglected the person on our left or to our right because we simply didn't want to share the gospel out of discomfort or awkwardness or out of fear of man. We will be ashamed standing before the brilliance of the Almighty God. We will be ashamed. 
And that's a sobering thought that we could be ashamed as you stand before Jesus that day, despite the fact that we've been saved. You see, brothers and sisters, friends, it's more than just believing a truth. It's eternally important that we also live it out too. Does this make sense? Because for the believer, when you die and find yourself standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be judged for your faith. Remember, it's because of your faith in Christ that you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a whole different story if you're standing at the white throne of God. Those are for the unbelievers. But in faith and saved by the righteousness of Christ, as you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, you, you won't be judged for your faith. Rather, you'll be standing there and judged by your works or what you do with your faith. That's the difference. Now, that's not the end of my sermon because there's another great truth we need to get into. Now, one of the clearest commands that God gives us here, and yet we find so difficult to, to listen to and abide in, is the great commandment in Matthew 22 and the great commission in Matthew 28. In the case of these two verses that we just read, God is urging us to share the gospel and live out the gospel in order to rescue one another. That's an interesting term. Rescue one another. And that's the second and final point. We must rescue those who are straying from the path. Straying from the path. You know, since my wife was in the Navy, I would get really excited any time and every time I, had to, I was able to go down to the base and visit her or pick her up or whatever because she worked with a presidential helicopter squadron. And so I was just surrounded by helicopters, and they're really cool. They make cool noises. And so I get to see him take off and do these practice runs, like, what would it be like when Eagle, Eagle comes in? I don't know what they call the president, right? When they pick him up, they do these like, practice runs, these drills, and you, and you hear them go around the base. And so, and so from that moment, I, my interest in military just stories grew. And I remember reading up on just random cool stories of not just the Navy, but the American military force throughout past wars. And there was this one story I recall. It was, a, it, was a, it was the Vietnam War, and there was the Air Force. And apparently in the Air Force, during that time, there was a pecking order. Maybe there still is now. I don't know. But there was a pecking order. The fighter pilots were the creme de la creme. They were the top brass, the guys who were the head honchos, you know. When, when they walked in the crowd, the rest of the people parted because they were the fighter pilots, right? And at the bottom of the end, at the bottom end were the helicopter pilots, apparently. The lowest form of life. I'm not saying this. That's what they said. But interestingly, during the Vietnam War, there, were a, there was a group of men called the Jolly uh, Green. And these were the helicopter pilots. These are the ones, these guys are the ones who flew the rescue helicopters. And yet whenever those Jolly Green went to a bar or a restaurant, they seldom ever had to pay their own tab, especially when the fighter pilots were around. Now, why the sudden reversal? These guys are at the bottom rung of the ladder. How come these guys are being praised and, and being bought drinks and food and all that stuff? Because, you see, the fighter pilots know this, the guys who, who uh, flew the jets. They know that any day, perhaps even the next day, they might find themselves shot down behind the enemy lines, surrounded by the enemy, about to be captured or even killed. 
And it was in those times that the guy who, com- who was committed to rescuing you, no matter what, even willing to put their own lives on the line to hover his helicopter right above you so he has enough time to pick you up and save your life, well, that guy becomes a pretty important man in the world to you. As a result, the jolly green pilots were heroes and got treated really well. What does that mean for us in a society where we prefer people left us alone and minded their own business and kept their distance? What does that mean for us in a pluralistic society where everything is tolerated except intolerance itself? And if someone has a differing view from the cultural mainstream, they're immediately labeled narrow-minded or bigoted or fanatic. What does that mean for us in a society that loves lawsuits and where people say that it's better for you to just keep your head low? and not meddle in other people's business. Here's the truth. It is easier to just leave people alone, isn't it? Isn't it? It's easier to leave people alone. I grew up in Falls Church City for over 28 years in the same house that I now live in. And for those 20-something years, I have probably said hello to a neighbor once. And it was by accident. We prefer to just keep our own business, not meddle in each other's business, leave each other alone. It's just easier to look the other way. It's easier to allow that person to remain wayward or unfaithful or spiritually drifting away. But God, he says, no, 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 no. Whoever that person is, that unbelieving person, you got to do something. And so verse 20 reads, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a life and death matter, and the stakes are high. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that it's not just a physical life and death that we're to be concerned about, but it's the spiritual life or an eternity of separation from God and everything good and everything heavenly and everything wonderful is at stake. If the gospel message, the good news of Christ, is that he died for us, rose from the grave, reconciled us back to the Father, if that's truth and you believe it, and we're benefiting from that wonderful, amazing truth, how in the world are we living it out today? It doesn't matter if they don't like us. If his soul is at stake, how can we ignore it? It doesn't matter if we're nervous or that you're introverted. If her soul is at stake, How can we ignore it? It doesn't matter if you're not theologically trained and you don't have enough knowledge of Scripture. If their soul is at stake, how can we ignore it? We must be willing at all costs to share the saving good news of Christ to everyone. Amen? At all costs. Now, I remember when I was at the Metro Center, I I transferred off the Orange Line or something like that, and like a good Metro riding citizen, I stood behind the raised yellow line. And I saw an elderly woman standing in front of the line, looking the opposite way from where the train would enter. The train all of a sudden comes out of the, whatever, the tunnel, and it's coming near. And I see that the woman is standing pretty close to the edge. So I took one step forward, tapped her arm, and I said, Ma'am, you should stand behind the line. The train is coming. She looked, saw that the train was coming, Stepped back, smiled at me, and said, thank you. I'm pretty sure I saved her life that day. 
But here's the thing. I think we're more concerned for people's physical safety than we are for their spiritual safety. Here's another illustration. My family and I, we just came back from a little family vacation. Yes, pastors go on vacation. It was a rare moment when my wife was able to get off of work from the hospital. My pastor brother was given a couple days off his, his church up in Boston. My pastor father was able to get some time off. My pastor sister was also able to get some time off. And my pastor self was also able to get a day off or two. The stars were aligned. So we decided to do something for my daughter. <laughs> so we took the family to an indoor pool resort that was recommended by actually a couple families here, and I appreciate your recommendation. It's called Great Wolf Lodge. If you're above the age of two, I don't advise you to go. But it's a great place if you're a family, young family. Well, they have a wave pool there. You know what that is? It's a pool with waves. And what's really interesting about that pool wasn't just the fun waves that would come crashing through people and, and creating these surfs and things like that, but actually were the lifeguards. There are two, to be exact, one on each side. Now, we all know that pools have lifeguards, but I've never seen any lifeguards like these. They would walk and stand along the side, which, again, is nothing unusual, but it was what they were doing with their neck and with their heads that made me stare at them, point at them, and laugh at them. <laughs> they would do this as a, if you imagine this being the legend, you guys bobbing up and down in the water. They would walk with their whistle and their floaty thingamabob, and they would do this. <laughs> and it was really awkward. They would just walk and stop, strain their neck, and do this kind of weird motion. Because there are so many people in the water and there's so much movement, it would be impossible to simply stare out and find someone in distress. So they do this motion, they've been trained to do this motion, this movement, that makes them look incredibly weird, maybe even foolish to some but it forces them to fixate on one spot after the other. And thank God for this method, because my wife and my sister actually witnessed a lifeguard who spotted a little girl who was drowning. He jumped in and rescued her, and no one around her even knew that she was in distress. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we have to make a fool out of ourselves to rescue people. People who need to desperately be saved, and while those around them think, that they're fine. And here's why we do this. Because in verse 20, it says, we'll cover a multitude of sins. Does that mean that we cover their sins? That we save them? That we give them salvation? Of course not. But the covering of sins is reference to the forgiveness that is extended through a right relationship with God because of Christ Jesus. You see what Jesus has done? He has absorbed and taking on the blow of God's wrath against our sinfulness. The blood of Christ and nothing else but the shed blood of Christ covers over our sin. I'm not talking about the type of covering where you sweep it under the rug. We're talking about paying debt type of coverage. Brothers and sisters, we're called to live out the truth, but also rescue those who are wandering. 
Since we're equipped with the gospel and the testimony of our transformed lives, we are called now to rescue people to Jesus because Jesus alone will forgive, free them, and fill them with the peace of God. Now this verse says an amazing truth here. God uses people to save people. After all, wasn't it a friend or a pastor or a family member or a guest speaker who shared the gospel? And it was that time when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Didn't God use someone to come into your life and speak truth? The beauty of our divine family, our church here, is that God, he allows us to participate and he gives us the kind of authority to declare the gospel, the truth of God's amazing grace to sinners, so that they too may come to know him. This makes me think about the kind of church that we are, and the church I hope that will be next year. Look, I believe that we'll grow in numbers. Just looking around, this is something that I would never have really imagined a few years ago. We were averaging 60, I think, just two years ago, and now we're averaging close to 90, if not more. And I'm happy, really I am. But we're not talking about the change in attendance numbers. God, through the book of James, is asking us a very real and practical series of questions. He's saying this to us, do you care a lot about one another? Do you care for each other? Like, do you really care? When someone's hurting, the person next to you, the person who hasn't been coming out every Sunday, like, are you actually concerned about that individual? Will you labor even at the expense of looking like a fool to rescue those who have been strayed? Will you draw in those who stand out on the fringes of our fellowship? Hey, guys, let's get rid of our clicks. Can I hear an amen? amen? Right? Like, I get this whole best friends forever thing, but let's be a best church forever. I don't know. Let's go downstairs from this point on, and I'm, and I'm being really serious here. That we go downstairs during fellowship, and as uncomfortable as it is, and as foolish as you may think you look or may act, sit with people who are not your own best friends that you grew up since in utero or whatever. Be friends with them. Make new friends. Get to know them. People who have been coming to church but have constantly, constantly been sitting on the fringes, bring them in closer to the inner circle. Amen? Amen? Will we let someone dare to correct us even when we are straying? That's a tough pill to swallow. When a beloved brother or sister comes up to you and says, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you should change this. Or why are you doing this? How will you respond? Will you respond defensively and say, well, what about your sins? Take that plank out of your eye. How will you respond? Will 2016 be a, a year where our church is numerically alive but spiritually dead? God forbid. You know, I began this year with the gospel, and I intend to finish it with it too. If you know who God is, then you'll know who you are. God is holy, and we are not. We are sinners in need of grace. There is no one here who is better or worse than the person next to you. There really isn't. We all need a Savior. No one here has any right in puffing up their chest with pride, thinking that all you've done or accomplished was solely based on your effort and that God had nothing to do with it. That's laughable. 
And we mustn't think that we are somehow owed something from God just because we've done one or two things right in our lives. Instead, our Lord encourages us to seek humility, individually and corporately, to seek meekness, to seek love and forgiveness, and through this way, we'll be on that path, living out the truth towards seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Do you want that? Do you want this church to live out the gospel? Amen? Amen. I have grown to love you all, and I expect my love for you will continue to grow, and I'm truly proud of all of you guys and all of us here striving together. Let's all seek after God's kingdom together as a church by living out the truth, by rescuing those who don't know the truth. It's time to just stop, it's time to stop just believing in the power of the Christian life and start living the powerful Christian life. Do you believe you can do that? By God's grace, we can. Let's pray. Before we go into our time of meditation, I just want to offer up a, a word of prayer. And then we'll pray, we'll meditate and reflect on what you've heard and what the Lord is doing in your life. And what he's calling you to do, especially as we enter this brand new year. I don't know about you, but even though this past year may have been good, whether it was good financially, good relationally, I want to urge you guys to never settle spiritually. Never remain and say, Lord, it's good enough here. No, no, no. Do not deny the depth and the width of God's amazing love and what he wants to do in your life. So, Father, I just want to lift up this English ministry here. We thank you for our beloved friends, our fellow brothers and sisters. And Lord, I thank you for the amazing call to stand here and preach the word every week. Lord, who am I? I am but a sinner in need of much grace. And it's because of your faithfulness and your goodness, Lord, that just a few days ago on Christmas Day, you came down from the glories of heaven to save people, a wretched sinner like myself who was unable, unable to save anyone. Lord, we thank you that you're the one who has saved us, that you're the one who extends your salvation and grace to us. And if there's anyone here, Father, who does not know you in the intimate and personal and life-transforming way, God, would you tug at their heartstrings? Would you move in their lives? Would you bring that conviction? Would you awaken their souls? Would you allow them to understand and see and really truly perceive their desperate, eternal need for you? We cannot do this alone, Father. And you have promised us that we don't have to do this alone. But if we just trust in you, if you just believe in you and we walk out in faith, in obedience, knowing that you're God and knowing that everything that you have ever said, never told us, is real, it's good, it's truth, it's a promise. There is no reason for us to fear anything but you alone. So we thank you, Lord. We pray all this in your son's name. 
Let's go ahead and take a moment to pray, just a brief moment, and we'll have our last song.